0: Welcome to In Conversation, a series of dialogues with leading authors and speakers in the field of spirituality and healing. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound, a gathering place of the world's wisdom traditions since 1970. Welcome everybody to the Banyan Books and Sound podcast, In Conversation. My name is Ross Makichi and I'm really honoured to be joined today by Lama Tsultram Alione. Um, She's the founder of Tara Mandala Retreat Center in Colorado and the resident teacher there. She's one of the only female Lamas in the world today has received international recognition as an outstanding woman in Buddhism. At the age of 22, she was ordained as the first American nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. She is a mother and a grandmother and the author of three wonderful books. The first one, Women of Wisdom. Her second book, Feeding Your Demons, And her most recent book, Wisdom Rising, Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine. Welcome to the show, Lamatsultram, and thank you so much for taking the time.
1: (coughs) Nice to be with you.
0: Um, Your work really centers around feminine spirituality. Uh, The first question I want to ask you is, what's a bit of history around the women of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition? What have been their challenges in the past and what are the challenges they're facing today?
1: So Buddhism went to Tibet in the eighth century and one of the very first and, and most important teachers in Tibet was Yeshit Sogyal, who was the consort and main student of Guru Rinpoche or Padmasambhava. And she really became a very important teacher. He left Tibet and she continued on for 40 or more years teaching and also hiding treasures, termas, in uh, Tibet, which is a tradition where the wisdom teachings were hidden in various places in Tibet and also in the minds of the disciples to be discovered in the future. Mm -hmm. And so it was a kind of way of updating the teachings. So Yeshi Sogyal was right away important in Tibet. The tradition in Tibet is a patriarchal tradition and certainly there was oppression of women in Tibet. However, women also were in many ways independent in, in ways that they were not in other areas of Asia. They were business women. Uh, there were nuns who lived alone in the mountains and yoginis also living in, in caves and in various places in the mountains. So, it was a combination of the usual patriarchal <laughs> oppression of women. And, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I can say it's pretty usual. Right. Um, and also, there were possibilities. And so, over the centuries, there were great yoginis who manifested, and there were many hidden great yoginis who... nobody would ever know their name, but they were highly achieved in, um, in their spiritual practice and realized beings. There was recently a woman in Tibet who took the rainbow body that means uh, that at the time of her death, her body reintegrated into light and her physical body, the corpse, gradually dissolved and became very, very small. And I've actually seen a picture of what it looked like when it, the size that it became, which was about that, that big, from a size of a human being and so that's a great uh, accomplishment and it's an, it's a sign of having truly understand understood our luminous nature not just say it but realize it and so there's been that tradition of yoginis in tibet all that time in in my first book Women of Wisdom, I cover those stories, some of them. Six women teachers from Tibet, that was the main focus of that book, uh, that go from the 11th century to the 20th century. And there's one in it, there's there's one book, uh, one story in that book, of Ayokhandro, and she lived until the 1950s and ayu means long life she lived to be 114 years old wow yeah i love i love her story because it really shows the life of a yogini in tibet and how she might have what her life might have been like which was basically a series of pilgrimages and long retreats and she also did dark retreat, which is when you go into complete darkness for long periods of time in order to develop these practices that then lead to the rainbow body or the body of light. So, there's in, in my book, uh, Women of Wisdom, there's also the story of Machi Kloptron who was the 11th century woman teacher who founded the church lineage that I teach and have really focused my life on. And so that book is a good place to look if somebody' interest is getting piqued yes. by me talking about this. The introduction has a pretty extensive exploration of women in Buddhism. And also I have my story in there what why i wrote that book and uh, why these stories were important for me so there's that personal preface and then a pretty lengthy introduction that covers buddhism and women and then the six biographies of the women so that's a good place to look if you are interested in this subject that you just asked the question about yes.
0: <laughs> thank you okay. um you, you remind me that in Women of Wisdom, your your life story really becomes one of the stories of these female yoginis and, and point to the fact that possibly your life story might be something that has a resonance for modern women that some of the more ancient stories don't. I'm just wondering if you could comment a bit on that and how your personal story has affected uh, other women that are students of yours or that have been influenced by your work
1: yeah it's it's interesting that you asked that question because when i wrote women of wisdom which was published first published in 1984 i debated about whether writing whether to write anything personal in it And I decided to write a short personal preface of why I wrote the book, why why this uh, had called me the subject. And I wrote it from my heart and uh, and I told my story a little bit. And uh, many people afterwards, said to me, I love women of wisdom, and especially your personal preface, Mm -hmm. because I could relate to it as a modern woman, modern Western woman, and and a mother. Uh, Not everyone is mothers, but, you know, many uh, spoke about that as well. So, my story uh, is interesting, because I have been a bridge person from an early age, bridge in the sense of east-west, having gone to India very early, and Nepal, and and then coming back, and then going back and forth, and and receiving these teachings directly from the ancient Tibetan tradition, and some of the old lamas who, died fairly early. So, I went in 1967. And so many of the great lamas were still alive then. Not that there's not great lamas now, but there were the ones from Tibet that had been trained in Tibet and so on before the Chinese invasion. And, and so my life has been that sort of, I guess, a kind of translator in a way. And then also, I have been. My life has been maybe exempt, mm-hmm. an example in terms of a woman and and a mother in the West, and ha- how I worked with the teachings, how uh, the struggles that I had, the challenges that I had as a woman, and. Also, a Western woman who has an interest in psychology and so on, women's studies. So, so, my story would be probably more relatable than many of the traditional biographies, although those have other kinds of qualities that my story doesn't have. So, it, it, it did become kind of another story in the book.
0: A very captivating story, I must say, to any of our audience that are interested. I really recommend any of her books, particularly "Women of of Wisdom" and "Wisdom Rising." Seem to feature your personal story mm-hmm. more. And I, I was, I, it's rare that I'm not captivated actually by an introduction in a book, and it really, really pulled me in. It's a wonderful story.
1: Mm. Thank you.
0: One of the themes that seems to come up in your story, for those who don't know, Lamet Sultram uh renounced uh her ordination as a nun to to start a family, to become a mother. And there's this struggle that you sort of point to where there's this push-pull, this this tension around the worldly life versus the renunciate's life. Um I'm just going to look here. I have a quote from your book. You said, In motherhood there was always a tension between my desire for the cave and the demands of the kitchen sink. (laughs) This, I feel, is a common struggle for people that are, their dharma is on the, the household, more of a householder path, but maybe there's this idea that it's a higher path to be meditating in a cave. I'm wondering if you can comment on that, expand on that for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. that that definitely was a challenge for me because I went from being a nun to being a mother in less than a year. So I went from having all the time I wanted to myself and meditation and silence study, practice to the demands of a newborn baby in a very short time with very little adjustment because I got pregnant almost as soon as I disrobed. So I didn't have a lot of adjustment after I had disrobed before I was already becoming a mother. And so This was something I struggled with, particularly when my children were young and had had a lot of needs and demands. So I learned to, or tried to, integrate practice with life and not have it be such a, a boundary between the two things. I would have my kids crawling all over me as I was trying to focus on a meditation, tearing down my shrine. <laughs> Literally. And and then just trying to stay in the practice. And I also integrated doing things with them, like we created altars together. And that was like a game for them and it had some sort of meaning for me. I did find, however, that I needed time for myself and for meditation. So while they were growing up, I found times for short retreats where I would go away. And then time for daily practice. Not, not in the beginning when I had newborns. I, I didn't have any time. I couldn't. And any time I had, I just wanted to sleep. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, when they got a little older, I could do that. But I never really wanted to leave them for very long. I would, I would miss them <laughs> too much. But I did have those periods of withdrawal and going back and um so that i sort of work both with trying to integrate practice with daily life with the kitchen sink and also some time alone to to practice or to go to retreats to go to to teachings
0: Hmm. what advice would you give to anybody that might be struggling with that tension themselves?
1: I don't know if I'd have advice exactly. I would say, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, as much as you can integrate practice into your daily life, Like we did a prayer before meals with my kids. Um, I would do short meditations with them. And then just trying to keep mindfulness during the day when I couldn't go away and, you know, sit on my cushion. So... The other thing I think that's important is that in in the Tantric tradition, which is a lay tradition, it's not a monastic tradition, there's an emphasis on embodiment as sacred and our senses as path. And what would be considered in the path of renunciation something to pronounce the five poisons and so on become the path in the tantric tradition and the material world is sacred rather than something that we want to get up and out of like let's get out of samsara and get to nirvana like no let's stay stay and recognize that embodiment itself is sacred, that the body is sacred, that the world and everything that we see and taste and touch and hear can be used for practice. And so that's a, a difference in the in the Tantric tradition, this sort of embrace of the world. And that's why sacred sexuality is associated with the Tantric tradition. Unfortunately, what's happened in the west is that the teachings of sacred sexuality have been pulled out and then people think that's tantra wait when you say tantra i I practice tantra everybody goes
0: sex Yes. (laughs)
1: Um, but that's the the whole point of tantra is integration with the senses and that there is a potential of a non-dual experience in union with someone else, that's one of the possibilities. But even using sight, using taste, hearing, all the senses can be used in that way. And so sexuality has been emphasized in the West because people are interested in that. Um, but it's, it's a much broader meaning in the, in the Tantric or Vajrayana tradition of Buddhism
0: thank you for touching on that um what what are some of the pitfalls i mean you've already mentioned sex as something what i've seen with tantric practice is that people zone in on something and obsess over it and there's there's an aspect in my understanding of tantra that the refinement and the purification and the elevation of all of these different um, activities is very important So how do we balance those, the tendency to get stuck in or obsessed with something like sex or use of a plant medicine where it might be justified as tantric practice, but there's a piece missing?
1: Yeah, the ego is tricky. Mm. It's often, the way you can tell if the ego is involved is: is there a fixation? Is there grasping going on? So, if say you're using plant medicines, they are medicines, but is there grasping? Is there some feeling that this, if I don't have this substance, I can't get to this place I want to get to? Or if I don't have sex, I can't get to where I want to get to. Really, the depth of practice is relaxation, is letting go of fixation. And that rainbow body that I was talking about in the beginning, in a way, that's the ultimate relaxation. Because it's the relaxation of the physical body to the point where it actually dissolves into light, which is its true nature. So anytime you find yourself fixating, I I like that word fixating better than attachment, because attachment can get mixed up with emotions and really healthy attachment is very important in relationships. But fixation, it's a kind of like, it's the lockdown, (laughs) the clamp down in the mind. And so this is something that each individual has to check up on in themselves. Am I fixating? Am I grasping? Is this a kind of materialism for me? And if so, then release, relax, and recognize. You don't need that, That's, you can do that, it can be an enhancement, but you don't need it.
0: You use the word, is this a kind of materialism, uh, which reminds me of um, Chogyam Chungpa Rinpoche's book, Spiritual Materialism, and I know he was one of your teachers I'm just curious, and I'm sure a lot of people are, about your experience in working with him as a teacher.
1: Uh, I met him in Scotland, actually, before he came to the United States. So I met him very early in his teaching career in the West. So that was 1969 when I met him. I had some really deep experiences with him. I think he was an amazing teacher. And especially in how to relate to the West. And, you know, he had that challenge like I have of, okay, here are these amazing teachings. How do I bring them into this very different context out of its cultural roots and still have it be authentic and have it at the same time be accessible. So that was his journey, that was his cohen, if you will, mm-hmm. of how to how to do that and it was hard he was he was early and really very alone in many ways. He didn't have the support of his teachers with him. Uh, there was nothing, no one who'd done it before him uh, to to follow. He was inspired by Suzuki Roshi, and uh, Suzuki Roshi was the very important Zen teacher who passed away in 1973, I believe, and he was very important and inspirational for uh, Chögyam Phompa Rinpoche. So Rinpoche's books, I think, uh, they have longevity. Mm -hmm. I know my, my nephew was in retreat and he was really struggling. He was doing traditional practice. And then he found Trumpa's book, I think it was Spiritual Materialism. Uh, And he read it and he said, oh, this just, it just makes it all make sense. And in a different way than the the translations, the direct translations that uh, came afterwards, uh, didn't help him with some of the ways he was getting stuck So so I met him in Scotland. Uh, I had some brief encounters with him and then I went back uh, there Mm -hmm. after being a nun for almost four years uh, and then re-met him and studied with him. And for me that was an important time because I was trying to figure out how to integrate my experience that I'd had in Asia with coming back to the West, and so I was really looking at how he was teaching these teachings that I had received in a very traditional way, for example, the six realms of existence, the God realm, the jealous gods, the humans, the animals, the hungry ghosts, and the hell beings. I had received those as literal. These are these are beings and these are different realms of existence. And he talked about them as mind states Hmm. that we all all experience. And then he explained how, you know, what's the hungry ghost mind state? And so on. So he he made those traditional teachings more understandable in the Western context. So so that was all good and really such a brilliant person. And then later I had a hard time with when he started to develop Shambhala and there was sort of a militant aspect of that and um, his... um, Use of alcohol became more and more to take over more and more, and so on. Uh, at a certain point, I couldn't do it anymore. The whole uh, Shambhala. Mm-hmm. because it wasn't it wasn't Buddhism. He said it's it's not Buddhism. It's it's this kind of secular idea and he was the king and she was the queen and so on and and I just said to myself I'm a buddhist (laughs) and uh this yeah this just isn't for me and so at that point I left and I, I moved to Italy so Still, he wrote the foreword for Women of Wisdom. He wrote something beautiful, and I met with him a few more times during his life, and I'll always hold him as precious as a teacher of mine, and I also see his fallibility, and also the fallibility of of what he created that we've seen now.
0: Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Thank you for that insight, Yeah. yeah. You're pointing... I I think just before we leave that
1: subject, he was taken away from his mother at a very, very early age and uh, raised in the monastery. And uh, he observed mistreatment of his mother in the monastery. This isn't something that's publicly known, but he personally told that to me. And so he was... Uh, hurt at an early age by that the separation of the child from the mother. Even though he was a reincarnation, he still needed his mother. And so I think a lot of what turned into an addiction to alcohol really was some very early wounds that he was he was he was struggling with and, and that seemed like the solution. So that, that uh, system of taking children from their mothers, I, I don't think is healthy. And I think it creates a distorted relationship with women and the feminine.
0: Yes. Which brings me to a quote from the, the latest edition of Women of Wisdom, where you say, there is a natural infusion that takes place when feminine experience enters and reflects on traditions that have been dominated by men for many centuries. And then you say, my life represents this infusion. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What? First off, what do you mean by infusion? And secondly, what does the feminine experience see and maybe embrace that the masculine does not.
1: By hmm. well, infusion, I mean influence. Um, the feminine is relational. And of course, these are generalizations and they vary culturally. But this is, it's pretty universal that the feminine is relational, that there is a sense of connectivity between beings and the feminine is present. Also that um, view that I spoke of before that's in Tantra of the material world being sacred rather than spirituality being sort of up and out somewhere in the sky. (laughs) <laughs> uh, or somewhere else than in the world. Yeah. So the feminine, and in, in all traditions that where there's a strong feminine presence, there's a sense of embodiment as sacred. And this is partly because women undergo pregnancy and birth and, and, uh, mothering. If you go through something like that, what that puts you through is so intense and so hard, you are going to value that life. You are not going to want to send that child into war to be killed, potentially killed. And so there's a natural sense of peacemaking and peace, keeping with the feminine and the sacredness of embodiment. So those are a couple of things that you'll find when there's a presence of the feminine.
0: Mm -hmm. If I may touch on something very personal from your story, you, you spoke in your books about the loss of one of your children and how that how deeply that affected you
1: mm-hmm.
0: and there's one situation a few days i think it was after the death of your child and this man coming up and saying to you that you were he felt you were too attached mm-hmm. and you asked him do you have children and he said no mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That was a. Uh, this question of attachment is something I really struggled with. The sort of attachment is bad um, view. Attachment can be bad, if you will, if it's based on fixation, but it's also connection. And so to say to a mother you're too attached when her child dies is really unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, an
0: unhelpful.
1: Um, because She's so connected to that child He's lived under her heart for nine months. She's given birth to that child. She's nursed at her breast. She's looked at it for hours on end with an incredible feeling of love and connection. What if mothers weren't attached? What if they didn't feel connected and they were detached? from their children. That would create a very unhealthy child, emotionally. We need healthy attachment. And that's why I don't use the word attachment, more fixation. Attachment is very important. It's part of our biological makeup. If we are not attached to our partner, to our family, to our tribe, we could die. There's a fundamental biological need for connectedness. And human beings are born in a very helpless state. They're not like baby horses or or uh, deer or others that hop up and then run and they're part of the, the herd right away. They're really helpless and if there isn't good attachment with those that that baby's depending on, then it will literally die. And so I think it's important to discern the difference between connection and love and fixation. Because that connection and love is important also in relationships there can be that you know, in relationship you're with someone and then they say oh you're too attached you know especially in the spirit, spiritual yes. Spirit, yes. you're too attached <laughs> I'm not attached really what that means is that person is disconnected emotionally and they're not able to or don't want to form a healthy connection with you. And that is very necessary. We need it as human beings. We need to feel that when we reach out, there's somebody there, and that that's a reliable connection. And so we need to discern the difference between that and Kind of grasping fixation, which has uh more of a more rigidity in it and more almost like a mind freeze that's uh not what healthy attachment healthy attachment is, is a flow and it, and it's it you're dependable uh for the other person and the other person is dependable back and that is something that's very necessary so these two things need to be
0: distinguished how does how does um, having healthy attachment healthy sense of connection from that young age and throughout our life in our relationships influence and uplift our, our sadhana, our spiritual practice.
1: Mm. While those healthy attachments relax our nervous system and allow us to fall more deeply into meditation, to enter into a state of non-duality, with with someone who you feel that deep trust and connection with, you can enter into a state of union that takes you into a state of non-duality, which is liberating. It's a liberating liberation from dualism. So, that's one way. And also, that healthy attachment creates positive relationships, not only with your partner, but also with others. If we treat our relationship with others as something which we have to do, but doesn't really have a value, we won't act in a way which has integrity. And therefore, our relationships will fall out of integrity and we'll have issues and crises and problems in our lives which then creates chaos and we can't practice our sadhana Mm -hmm. or it's hard to when we have a lot of emotional and physical chaos going on in our lives. So it allows us to be more settled.
0: Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense, yeah. I've seen that in my own life when when things are out of balance, even a little bit in different relationships, that in your meditation that it's gonna be there. It's disruptive on many levels. Yeah. It's an energy drain.
1: Yeah. This was something I really uh, learned when my husband died, when David died, which I, I wrote about a little bit in my last book, he died in 2010. And we had a very uh, deep, long, 22-year love story. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot together, you know, we created Tara Mandala and we were partners on all levels. So it was a devastating loss for me. And then afterwards, I felt like, okay, I had that. I had that. I had that relationship. Now I don't have it. So now I should be okay without that. I should be Able to be independent and and not need to have another relationship, and I really struggled with that because I really wasn't okay. I really wanted that reliable, co reliant rather than codependent um, closeness with someone which is different than a friendship, you know, it's, it's, it's different. And so after about five years, I came across the work of Sue Johnson a book called Hold Me Tight and she developed emotionally focused therapy and she developed and, and through her research found that this whole idea that had been perpetuated by psychology in my lifetime, which was that if you really have your emotional, um, life together, you're fine by yourself. Hmm. And if, you don't then you won't be able to enter into a healthy relationship so you need to be fine alone before you can enter into a really healthy relationship but she said no that's not true we all need a healthy reliable connection and there's nothing wrong with that in other words because i was feeling like there's something wrong with me that i want this and so that was a a learning that i went through after david's death is that it's okay it doesn't mean that you're hurt a failure an emotional failure Mm -hmm that you're not okay without this. So I think that's something that's been also in the spiritual realm. A um, sort of theory that really we should be without attachments. That's the goal. And that's the way it's been taught. And I disagree with it. I think that we need dependable healthy connection and you could and that's healthy attachment <laughs> so you see what i mean it's like it's really yeah. different
0: views yes very much it, it is deeply ingrained in people i think there's that deep uh, i don't know if you want to call it spiritual conditioning that yeah we're meant we're not doing it right if we have have a need those human needs where those human needs get pushed down and then they come out in warped and weird ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like sexual abuse. Yes. In the Catholic Church or you know trying to repress sexuality. It sexuality is very strong and it finds it finds a way. So yeah, warped and and damaging.
0: I have a question about on that topic um, about partnership on the path um, and the importance of on the tantric path of having that reliable partner. What the partner that we choose or that chooses us that. How important is it to be with a person that is also doing that same work? And the the nuances of the energetic, emotional transference, the psychic transference that goes on between partners.
1: Yeah. I have never been in a relationship with someone who's not firmly on the path. Mm -hmm. I know people that are serious practitioners and their husband or wife or partner isn't, and it doesn't mean they can't follow their path deeply, and it doesn't mean that they can't be close to that person and have a good marriage. They can just kind of have this other part of themselves that is there, but that they don't share with that person. There's also really amazing people who aren't spiritual practitioners. They, They maybe did a lot in the last life, and they're just amazing bodhisattvas in this life, and they don't have a practice. So there's so many possible variations of, how relationship can take place. However, if you have a partner who's really a spiritual partner, as well as a life partner, then there's a possibility of sharing the depth of your being. Because our practice is our deepest place. And it's also our understanding of the universe, how we see the universe. For example, I see, I see it as there's the ground of being and then there's the radiance of the ground of being, which is all of this, everything in the world. And that's all coming out of the ground of being, which is also called the Great Mother. And so that's my worldview. Hmm. If I'm with somebody who, shares that then we just we share that and so we're seeing things in the same way and and that provides a a a deep connection and also the possibility to practice with someone else and to to share the depth of what really matters to us and if you are a serious practitioner it's it matters to you and so, the intimacy can be so deep when we are sharing a path together. And a lot of that intimacy is unspoken. It takes place just sitting in meditation next to someone. Or going to teachings with someone and then being able to talk about it afterwards. It's, it's sharing an interest. You know, that's sort of superficial way to say, to talk about it, but it's much deeper than that because you also have the possibility, if you're a Vajrayana practitioner, to practice sex- sexuality um, in a different way than uh, normal with that person, to eat in a drink in a different way. Just, you know, everything becomes path that you're sharing with that person if you're with a partner who isn't sharing uh the the path with you you can still share a lot of things and have a good relationship it's just it's just different Mm -hmm. and it's especially if that person is supportive of your path and you know you say i want to go on retreat and they're like yeah go you know everything will be fine go and uh and then you go back to them afterwards then I don't think it's a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I'm such a romantic, so I love. I love what you just said. <laughs>
1: I'm a romantic too.
0: <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> uh,
1: well, and what does that mean, romantic? You know, it it it's that it's that deep longing that is really a healthy, it's a healthy and natural thing. And that's what I came to understand through Sue Johnson's book was, it's not, there's nothing wrong with that. Doesn't mean that you're not evolved.
0: speaking specifically to young women who may be in our audience what advice would you give to them in terms of the the journey of finding their own independence their own personal authority their own selfhood while also working with that very human and natural desire to be in relationship with a man or a partner
1: mm-hmm Well I had that time as a nun, Um, I talked about that in um, Women of Wisdom in in my personal introduction because before that, before as a nun I became ordained when I was 22, I had oriented my life around whoever my latest boyfriend was. What's he doing? What are we going to do together? Uh, and and so on and it wasn't all healthy relationships and so by just cutting that off for a while and being on my own and being in that state of the maiden who belongs to no man or no woman depending on um, what your sexual orientation is uh, I think it's a powerful thing for a young woman to experience a time when she makes a decision to just be by herself, develop herself and not necessarily only spiritually, maybe it's creatively or academically or something like that to sort of pull the um, energy back from, from relationship and onto herself and also because once uh, she does have children, if she does, that energy's <laughs> that's gone, you know, it's, it's in the kids for a long time. Mm. And so that's an opportunity that a young woman has, is to take some time for herself, by herself. And doesn't necessarily have to be a long time, but that's, that's a possibility. The other thing is to really understand the history of women, and the history of women in spirituality, uh, to understand the yogini tradition. Uh, Passionate Enlightenment is one of my favorite books in that sense of the tantric women's teacher's stories. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Dr. Miranda Shaw's book, Passionate Enlightenment. And It also talks about sacred sexuality. I have a wonderful quote in my Padma chapter of Wisdom Rising about that. Um, But anyway, learn about those stories of women who came before you. Find your inspiration, find your sort of inner lineage. Also connect with older women as mentors maybe it's a a therapist, Uh, maybe it's a woman teacher, Uh, maybe it's just an older woman friend, and learn from her. Women have been recovering themselves within my generation. Before that, we were really defined by our role as mother and wife. Really, that was the definition. I've been I've been reading a book called uh, "Square Haunting" about five women writers uh, between the wars in in London, and just reading about the Victorian view of women's role, which was there's no reason for women to get educated except to become better wives and mothers, and there was no sense of a woman's independent value and so I guess the main thing I'm saying is find your independent value and know that and know that no one should or can take that away from you and your value is not defined by your other by your partner it's it's defined by yourself and find your interests, find your path and cultivate that with passion and with commitment,
0: hmm. that's wonderful, thank you it, we're We're getting close to an hour here, so I want to honor your time. There's one more question along those lines before we start winding down, and that is for men what what is the role for men to play in a being that reliable Mm-hmm. supportive, loving partner with healthy attachment and and be in in the arising, the re-arising, maybe we could say, of, of feminine spirituality on the planet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well on tantra, Vajana, we one of the mudras is like this. He cross the arms usually holding the bell. So I have my bell and vajra right here, so I can hold them. Um, It's like like this. I'm holding it a little high, Uh, but this is the union of masculine and feminine. The the bell is the feminine, and the vajra is the masculine, and so uh, we need each other, and. Each holds a role with the other. The um, positive masculine is, is, is fantastic. It's, the way I see it is positive masculine is a protector energy, a protective energy. It is very skillful, able to do so many things. And the strength of a man is, it's, that's a beautiful thing just to, to be around, to feel, to um, be embraced by Mm. (laughs) uh, that feeling of, of being held and protected. And so this is something that we're developing now at Tara Mandala, because I've talked so much about the feminine. Now we're working on this year on retreats on the sacred masculine. And so really looking at this question of skillful means, that's it's usually wisdom is the bell and the vajra is skillful means. And so really developing an understanding of what is skillful means, upaya in, in Sanskrit, and what is the role of the, of the masculine and remember, we all have the masculine in us. I have, I have the masculine in me, even though my gender is female. I have both, you know, we, we, we all both. And in, in Jung's terms, we have the anima and the animus. And so for a woman, her masculine, her healthy masculine is going to give her drive, it's going to give her the ability of function, skillful means in the world, where she's not just out, out there in the wisdom body, and, um, and so on. And for men, they need to develop the feminine also, but they don't, we, don't, we don't want them to become women. We want them to be men, but to also own their feminine side and allow it to be there. And when those, when both those elements are present, uh, in in a good and healthy way, then we have an integrated psyche. If in a man, if the feminine is is not healthy, and not it's not the positive feminine, it'll come out in mood moodiness, mm-hmm. and in um, sort of flashes of anger. Um, And uh, yeah, sort of lots of ups and downs and moodiness. So that means he needs to find a voice for that feminine part of himself. Jung Jung talked about this, and that was how he he discovered the, the feminine, and he actually named it, and he dialogued with his feminine. So I think that could be the same for women with their masculine to develop a relationship with their masculine and dialogue with him so i think it's an exciting time for men and also a scary time because of course men don't want to be the oppressor they don't want to perpetrate the painful uh, oppression of patriarchy that creates so much suffering and at the same time who are their role models. Who who are they looking to for a healthy model of a male who's in relationship and relatedness, values relatedness, and is at the same time holds his strength and, and independence and, and his skillful means and wisdom and so on. So that's another thing for men is look for mentors. Look for men that you admire that, that have a positive relationship with women and, and yet are holding their masculine in a, in a strong way and uh, ask to learn from them. Maybe it's a male therapist. That could be good, a male psychotherapist or an older male friend mentor something like that. Uh, I'm not sure how many there are of those. Of uh, you know an old older generation, but I think there are, and I I know some, uh, because men have had to evolve as women changed and evolved. In the '70s, as you know, with women's lib, suddenly the men were like, "Whoa, you know, what do I do?" And they've gone through lots of different things to try to honor that and. It, and at the same time, not lose themselves. And, and to have uh, friendships with other men, I think is also important, men's groups. My brother has been in a, the same man's group for 30 something years, and he's married, but those men are a big part of his life. And he's found a real sort of healthy masculine to relate to it's not just drinking beer and watching sports it's they talk very deeply they do rituals together some of them have died now and you know it's it's a deep relationship so i think forming deeper relationships with men is also important
0: yes thank you and i can affirm what you said that it it is a little bit more rare to find elder male role models that um, understand the nuances of being on a spiritual path. Um,
1: Yeah, imagine it is.
0: But they are out there. I I know from my own experience that I've managed to find some good role models. So any men listening to this, don't be discouraged. They are out there. (laughs) Yeah, and
1: we're going to do a retreat at Taramandala on the Sacred Masculine this year. So that's something that uh, we'll do it as a virtual retreat. I I can't remember the exact dates of it, but um, if you look at the Taramandala website, that will come up and get on our email list or um, our Facebook page.
0: What is the website? Taramandala.com? org.com org. org. Okay.
1: T-A-R-E M-A-N D-A-L-A dot O-R-G.
0: Okay. We'll post that with this um, podcast. And also, I understand you have uh, a symposium coming up. Can you tell us a bit yeah. about that?
1: Yeah. Th- this is... Uh, I mean, I think we've all wondered what to do. <laughs> Um, at this time, and I've been struck by the need to not miss this moment in our rush to get back to normal, Mm -hmm. and to find the wisdom that is trying to be communicated to us by the earth, by bringing us to our knees and stopping us, finally. So um, I created, brought together, invited a group of people who I think have interesting things to say about this in a four-day online symposium, May 22nd to 25th. It's called Voices of Wisdom in Times of Crisis. So we'll hear from t- some of today's wisdom keepers as they offer their insights into, into these times and share meditations. There's several live concerts and guided meditations and looking at what are the myths and prophecies that are relevant at this time. How can we continue to let the earth breathe and still support life on earth? How can we respond to the imperative voice of the feminine in this time? So I brought together 12 people, including Chief Arbel Looking Horse, who is one of those amazing male mentors. He's the 19th generation holder of the actual, original pipe from White Buffalo Calf Woman. Wow. He was given it at, at the age of 12, and he it, nobody that young has ever been given it. He is chief in all three of the Sioux tribes. He is Lakota himself, uh, and he will be talking about White Buffalo Calf Woman, the pipe, and, and that message. Also, Tara Brock, who wrote Radical Acceptance and other wonderful books she's going to speak. She also has a connection with feminine and wants to talk about that. Uh, Krishnadas, who is a kirtan singer, which is devotional music in the Indian tradition. He's going to sing songs to the goddess or Mm. chants to the goddess. Mm. And also another kirtan singer named C.C. White, who is a soul singer of kirtan. Her mother was an amazing gospel singer, Mm. and uh, she's just amazing. So some of it will be singing. Then Nancy Frelotti, who's a PhD in psychology, a Jungian, and was responsible for getting the Red Book published. Jung's journal and visions and paintings from his uh, key transformative time. Uh, Nancy's also an author herself, a senior Jungian analyst and trains Jungian analyst, and she's going to talk about these current times from the Jungian point of view and from the dreams that Jung had before World War I and the dreams that people are having now. Dreams like dreams, not like dreams like hopes and wishes, but uh, actual dreams. Uh, Dr. Sue Smalley, who teaches uh, at uh, UCLA, she founded MARC, the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at, at UCLA. She's a geneticist by training and then had a kind of shift in awareness herself and began this program, Mark, that has now trained hundreds, if not thousands, of mindfulness teachers. She's going to talk about mindfulness and anxiety and how that connects to these times and uh, her own insights. Dr. Miranda Shaw, whose book I talked about, um, she wrote Passionate Enlightenment and Buddhist Goddesses of India. She's going to speak about the Buddhist goddesses at this time and um, also, Sanjay Khandro, who is one of the greatest Tibetan translators. She started translating in 1996, and she's going to talk about this whole situation from the Tibetan Buddhist point of view, about particularly the Mamos, who are wrathful female energies that erupt in, in disease and epidemics when they are offended. And Dr. Janine Caddy, who is uh, the Director of the Ecology Program at Naropa University. And uh, she's also written and spoken a lot about the feminine and uh, women. And <clears throat> Maribai Star, who I think you've spoken to, um, who has written about the feminine in a lot of different cultures. And also, she's going to speak everyone's going to speak to these times yeah. and there will be programs and um, meditations and so on. And then finally, uh, Zenju, Earthland Manuel, who is an African-American Zen master oh. and, and writer. And uh, she is going to talk about uh, the Zen approach to this to these times. And so all of these different speakers, myself and Shiva Ray, also will be speaking. So we'll do this over that Memorial Day weekend, four people a day, and it's free, and it will also be available uh, afterwards. um, The recordings will be available. They won't be free, there will be a charge for those, but for 48 hours all the talks will be free and so that's something i've been working on so that's may 22nd to 25th and um, it's called uh, voices of wisdom in times of crisis
0: wonderful and is there a a a web link for that should people just go to taramandala.org or is there a a facebook page or
1: yes uh, go to Tara Mandala Retreat Center Facebook page, and also it will be up on taramandala.org. It's going up today, the registration. You do need to register for it. It will be on Zoom. And so you need to download Zoom if you haven't already. And I guess you probably have if you're listening to this.
0: (laughs) This will be posted on YouTube actually on, uh, yeah the recording. Oh, on
1: YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll put an announcement up on our Taramandala channel on YouTube too. But the best thing is to uh, go to our Facebook page, Taramandala Retreat Center, or my um, public figure Facebook page, Lama Sultra Malione, and then to taramandala.org for all of our programs and to hear about the retreat center in Colorado and all that.
0: Yes. It sounds like a really wonderful symposium coming up. So everybody, please register. I'm sure everybody, anybody who's watching this in the future, we're smack dab in the middle of the coronavirus days. So if you're wondering what the reference is for what the times that we're in, Uh, that is where we find ourselves. Anybody watching it now will totally understand that. Yeah, Um,
1: I think these, these talks will be relevant in the future. They're not just relevant right now.
0: If I may ask one closing question, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and you were just touching on it, this present world situation, how, in your outlook, how does it relate, if at all, to the rising of feminine consciousness and to the collective shadow?
1: Mm. Well, I think it's the voice of the wrathful feminine, really. The, uh, the COVID virus came out of nature from uh, this wet market, uh, where they're killing and eating wild animals. So you have a combination of, of just that, the killing, and then the wildness being caged. And, to me, what this is about is it's the voice of the feminine that's trying to get through to us. And it has not been getting through. Uh, We've been trying. And there certainly have been many women uh, and and men speaking about global warming, uh, trying to get attention of our world Leaders, if you can call them that, and um, not n- not not happening. So this has brought us to our knees. Uh, we're listening. We're stopped. And what feels like has happened to me is the earth is taking deep, long breaths. I can breathe not full of pollution, and global warming, you know, people aren't flying, there's less carbon dioxide, huge, huge difference right now. So I think this is the wrathful manifestation of the feminine, the fierce uh, feminine, trying to get our attention. And it has gotten our attention. It's pretty amazing when you go outside and you don't see cars and you see everybody with their faces covered and so on. It's terrible that so many people have died and gotten sick and and all of us are living in fear right now. I went out yesterday for a while, and you know I have my mask on and everything, but just felt afraid just being out there. And so I think the potential, and that's why I want to have this conference, is because I think there's a potential in the, sen- in the situation. And I think this is an imperative voice of the feminine that's speaking now. And so that's what I want to talk about in this symposium is what is the potential? of the situation that we could glean from it. What shifts could we personally make coming out of this that would be in response to the earth? And, uh, and to me, that's, that's what's happening. It's, it's the wrathful feminine in, in, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. It's called the Mamos and they manifest like this in, in epidemics. And uh, there's a story of Milarepa, for example, of uh, worldly dakinis who get offended by uh, villagers smoking, uh, creating toxic smoke. So these, they're, they're like spirit beings and they get offended and they unleash an epidemic into the community. And so Milarepa intervenes between these worldly dakinis and the villagers and gets the villagers to do certain rituals and ceremonies, and of course stop polluting um, offerings to these dakinis and then the situation is is, um, pacified. And so, yeah, I think we need to pacify the situation to find out what the message is, to listen, because I don't, I think it's going to get worse if we don't. So it's really important that we get the message. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that what that message is, is an individual thing that each person needs to find themselves and that will be part of the symposium with some guided meditation so that you can get guidance for yourself on what your path of response will be how your life might change
0: in response to it it sounds very helpful I
1: hope so. (laughs) It's a great group of people that, uh, whose voices we're not necessarily hearing right now. Mm. So that's exciting.
0: Lamat Sultram, thank you so much. It's really, I'm very, feel very honored to be able to have spent this time in conversation with you and uh, gleaning some of your wisdom um to all our audience thank you for joining us and a reminder if you're interested her latest book is wisdom rising journey into the mandala of the empowered feminine and if if there's more that you'd like to learn you can go to taramandala.org or find taramandala retreat center online and we'll include those links with the youtube as well as the Potomatic version of this interview thank you so much for taking the time all the best
1: thank you it's nice to be with you
0: thank you for listening to in conversation a podcast of banyan books and sound canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970 find us at banyan.com for live events books and more